Welcome to this week's Investor Podcast. This is Gavin Ralston. I'm joined this week by Azad Zangana. So we're almost at the end of August, and the month so far has followed its traditional pattern and has been a very weak month for risk assets. The S&P 500 is down about 6% from its high in late July. European markets have fallen to a similar extent, and some of the Asian markets have done worse. Hong Kong, perhaps for obvious reasons, Korea and Singapore, for example. Within stock markets, momentum remains the dominant factor, which means that large growth companies continue to be more resilient than cheaper value stocks. The other side of all this is that government bond yields are reflecting this very risk-averse environment. We've had record inflows into bond funds in the last couple of weeks. The US 10-year is at 150 today, having been 2% in late July and 2.5% as recently as April. The events of the past week have had a familiar ring to them. News of weaker growth with global manufacturing PMIs slightly below 50, the borderline between expansion and contraction. We've just had confirmation that the German economy shrank in the second quarter, and there have been hints that Germany may, after all, be prepared to consider fiscal stimulus. Elsewhere, we've had further sabre-rattling between the US and China on tariffs and the much-awaited Jackson Hole speech. Uh, Unfortunately, Jerome Powell didn't give any particular steer on monetary policy, other than to say that the Fed would be guided by the data and the impact of trade on the economy rather than the rhetoric. This did not go down well with President Trump. Finally, and perhaps most significant in the long run because of the implications it has for climate change, there have been the fires in the Amazon and the resulting dispute between the Brazilian government and the international community and what should be done about them. But as I said, in the last week, you've just revised your global forecast, reducing growth expectations a bit. Can you give us a bit more context on your thinking? Absolutely. So the the big change to the forecast comes from um, the trade war situation. So we previously expected a deal to be done between the US and China uh, for sometime around the end of this year. Um, this now looks very unlikely. In fact, we've we've gone from having a deal to having a further escalation in terms of what we where we're at today. So we've just had uh, another 10% announced on the the final part of the exports from China to the US. Obviously, over the weekend, we, we've actually had some hints that that might go up even more than that 10%. But um, we think that this could go up to maybe 25% uh, by early next year. So we, we just don't see very little... Uh, we see very little um, scope for a deal to be struck in the next year or even two. So with that in mind, we've had to downgrade global trade, uh, downgrading global manufacturing, and that's had a negative impact, especially for the uh, economies that are very export-orientated, like Germany, the Netherlands, Japan, and, and other parts of emerging markets. So they've they've seen quite a bit of a downgrade. The U.S. Um, has been uh, downgraded uh, for next year, down from 1.5 to 1.3%. Uh, percent. Um, now, that's not as much as you might think. But then again, we've had some offsetting factors. So, for example, we now have the Fed cutting interest rates uh, significantly next year. We Before, we only had a couple of cuts. We now have five cuts in total. So, that helps boost growth. 
In addition, we've had the sequestration cap being lifted for next year. Now, for those who don't know what that is, is. absolutely. This was a sunset clause on some extra spending that took place uh, that was introduced under the Obama uh, administration. So it was due to expire uh, next year, towards the end of next year, and it would have roughly shaved off about 0.3 percentage points from US GDP growth. Now that that cap isn't coming in, uh, we can find ourselves upgrading based on this alone. So we've had some offsetting factors to the negativity. um, And as a result, the downgrade to the US is not quite as much as perhaps we're seeing in Europe, whereas, uh, for example, in, for the Eurozone, we've downgraded from 1.4% growth to just 0.9%. So you can see uh, the, the impact is far greater on those export-orientated economies. So although the dispute is between the US and China, it's not the US and China that are particularly suffering from the trade contraction. It's more, as you say, company, countries exposed to manufacturing exports. Yeah, it, 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 that's, I think, been the lesson so far this year is that uh, global trade is affected. And as a result, you see companies cutting back their investment plans. If they're buying less machinery and equipment, that typically comes from Japan and Germany. Uh, and then at a later point, you start to see uh, a bigger impact on, for example, commodity exporters that feed in to the uh, um, trade partnerships and then other uh, uh, economies that also feed in. So, for example, you would expect uh, Taiwan and South Korea to be feeding through in to uh, Chinese exports, be it through uh, electronics or uh, microprocessors, etc. Uh, obviously, China doesn't produce everything itself in-house. It imports from the rest of the world. So that's where we're seeing most of the weakness in, in uh, Southeast Asia, but also in the big capital goods exporters like Germany and Japan. But your, your global GDP number has gone, I think, from 2.6 next year to 2.4, and that's obviously including the faster-growing emerging economies. It still doesn't sound consistent with the way bond markets are behaving. Uh, you know, negative yields in most of Europe, most of Germany. It's really only the US where you can get positive yields in bonds. So it seems like markets are even more pessimistic on a growth outlook than you are. I guess if you took a simple comparison between today and the period of the financial crisis, you could easily come to the conclusion that we're about to enter another financial crisis. But there's no evidence to support that at all. Um, You know, banks are in a healthy position. Economic growth numbers are still reasonably good, especially in the US, but they are fraying in other parts uh, of the world. One thing that is different, of course, today versus back then is the huge amount of quantitative easing that central banks have done, which have limited the supply of government bonds to the open market, which, of course, has depressed uh, bond yields as a result. So I I don't think it's right to compare today to the past and and draw such uh, big conclusions. Um, You can look at the equity market. The equity market, in some equity markets, of course, they're down uh, on the month, but uh, it was only a few weeks ago that they were hitting record highs in some indices. So um, you can hardly conclude that that is a signal of recession uh, at this point in time. You talked in one of your recent monthlies about the world economy being like a wobbly bike. It sounds like it's still wobbling, but hasn't crashed yet. Yeah, that's right. Uh, It's it's certainly losing momentum. And I I guess the concern is if it loses enough momentum, then we have that self-fulfilling negative spiral that could come through. Um, At this point in time, we're looking at where the policy offsets could come from. So we clearly... 
see room for monetary policy to work uh, in the US because interest rates are higher and they can, there's plenty of room for them to come down. In some parts of the emerging markets, that can also happen, although the recent weakness in currencies could limit how much interest rates can fall now. Um, in other parts of the world, for example, in Europe, where interest rates are already very negative, we actually do expect them to fall a little bit further. But in reality, monetary policy is is pretty much done. There's, there's not a lot more that can come from uh, monetary policy. Instead, fiscal policy will have to be uh, the main tool to try to boost demand where it's appropriate. The other thing you've been writing about is the the scenarios, um, the risks to your base case. Two in particular caught my eye. One of them was a new one, I think, which is a food price shock. Can you elaborate on that for a moment? Yeah, so we've been seeing a pattern recently of wholesale food prices escalating. Uh, Some of this has been driven uh, by various forms of diseases that have wiped out uh, crops or have influenced livestock. Um, But we're also seeing that this is linked to uh, rising temperatures across the world and climate change more generally. So we decided to build in a scenario whereby we have wholesale food prices jump 50% in a very short space of time to simulate what a price shock could do. Now, that might sound like quite a lot, but actually we've seen similar shocks in the past, uh, in the last couple of decades. So this is not an unrealistic scenario by any means. Um, the impact globally uh, is not huge in terms of growth, but uh, there is a more negative impact for emerging markets than it, there is for developed markets. And that's really because um, as a share of total consumption, food uh, is a much uh, more important uh, share uh, for the emerging markets. Hmm. That's an interesting one. I think it's, it's, it's not an issue that markets are particularly focused on at the moment. The other one, which I think is in a similar category, is um, you talked about uh, intervention to weaken the dollar as a policy tool. Yes, well, Trump has consistently complained about the strength of the dollar and lack of action um, from the Fed. Of course, it's not up to the Fed to weaken the dollar. That's down to the US Treasury to use its reserves in the way that it sees uh, fit. So we thought as as an alternative to the further escalation in the trade war scenario that we have already, um, what if the US goes out and simply devalues the dollar by 20% against all currencies? Well, in in this world, we do see uh, um, slightly stronger growth coming through. And that's partly because it allows some of the emerging markets uh, to um, boost their production and boost world trade. Typically, a strong dollar has hurt world trade. So a reversal of that would be um, quite helpful. Um, you'd also expect to see a little bit or, uh, or slightly lower inflation uh, as well. You, We would expect to see uh, commodity prices uh, coming off. Uh, but generally speaking, a, a lower dollar uh, environment uh, comes off as a, a sort of productivity boosting um, scenario in terms of how we look at our grid uh, and comparing it to our baseline and other scenarios. So one emerging market that's been in the news in the last week or so has been Brazil as a consequence of the fires in the Amazon rainforest. They're obviously very concerning for anyone worried about climate change, but there are also, I think, market and economic implications. 
Absolutely. I mean, the, there are growing concerns, uh, certainly coming from the G7 meetings uh, over the weekend. There are some talks that uh, this could lead to sanctions if not enough action is taken by the Brazilian government. Indeed, there are some governments already uh, talking about and act actively encouraging uh, the um, uh, banning or, or avoidance of imports from uh, Brazil in terms of the stock of beef. Um, so there's clearly a lot of pressure coming from uh, international circles for uh, President Bolsonaro to take greater action. But of course, he's decided uh, to take a much more populist tone and trying to uh, really uh, push back on the external intervention. You know, he sees the Amazon as a domestic resource rather than an international public good. Um, and for that reason, he's rejected uh, efforts uh, and, and international aid to help support the uh, the putting out of the fires. So this is a great example of where populism uh, is is head to head with globalization in a way. Yes, absolutely. Although at the same time, of course, they're, they're uh, you know, certain parts or elements within Brazil are exploiting the Amazon for exports. You know, it's timber and, yes. and cattle ranching and so on. I also mentioned the um, the Jackson Hole speech that Jay Powell gave on Friday. It seemed like a bit of a non-event except for President Trump's reaction to it. Was, was there anything in what he said that would cause you to change your view on US monetary policy? Not particularly. It, I think it, it just framed the recent discussion around uh, the recalibration of US monetary policy. Uh, you'll remember that when they did cut interest rates recently, uh, they mentioned that um, they were moving. Well, it was partly an insurance cut in interest rates in case the economy slowed, but also partly in response to um, their new thinking, which is that the natural rate of unemployment is lower than previously thought. They haven't had as much inflation come through as they had expected, and, and that helped justify low interest rates. But we really had no indication of whether we would get more interest rate cuts or not. Um, one thing that Powell stressed was that you know we were living in very strange times whereby um, a lot of the weakness coming through is not cyclical. It's, it's being caused by a, a an exogenous political shock in the, in the in the form of the trade war. And what he, he mentioned was, it's not really clear what monetary policy can do to help stop such a trade war. If anything, I mean, I, I certainly would argue that uh, in in responding and and cutting rates, uh, you're actually creating space for that trade war to to escalate further. Yeah, and I saw a tweet from Larry Summers who was talking about we shouldn't be worried about the Japanification of Europe, we should be worried about the Japanification of the US as well, uh, structurally low growth. But that's a conversation for another day, perhaps. Um, I mean, st staying with tweets and President Trump, uh, it seems that there's been something of a harder edge to his tweets recently. You've talked already in some detail about trade, but also his, his attack on the Fed and his rather bizarre comments on Denmark. It, do you think political risk for markets is now rising? It's certainly um, been at the forefront of investors' uh, uh, minds, and in, certainly in recent weeks. And I, and I partly put this down to it being the summer, not a lot else going on. 
Um, so the, the silly season in terms of news is is uh, very much alive and kicking. I suspect as we get back to business in September, you'll start to see less of uh, this kind of risk making it into the news. I'm not saying it's going to go away. It's clearly going to be there and the noise will always be there. But I think in the absence of real news or real developments, it's clearly gaining a lot of uh, momentum out there. Uh, and I suspect the uh, the algorithmic traders have been uh, certainly reacting to it much more than normal uh, and moving markets more than normal, clearly just on the back of lack of liquidity that you normally get in the month of August. We, we started this conversation talking about Europe as being the region which is most vulnerable to recession risks caused by contraction in trade. Uh, and I mentioned that there'd been some talk for the first time of uh, a prospect of fiscal stimulus in Germany. Is that really going to happen? I think we will get some fiscal stimulus, but, uh, you know, we shouldn't really expect a great deal. Certainly nothing along the scale of what the US has done in recent years or what Japan has been doing. Um, because you have to understand from the German perspective, there are no uh, populist parties out there pushing for huge fiscal stimulus. It's not the same as Italy or in the UK. Um, in Germany, uh, it's still a very austere country. They're much more concerned about the aging population over the next 30, 40 years. And they want to make sure that there's enough fiscal space uh, for spending to be used on that aging population. They don't want to use it today and not have enough space to do that in the future. Now, we could happily argue that with um, interest rates being negative out to 30 years along the curve now, that this is a, gr a great opportunity for them to go out and, and borrow to invest. But they would argue that if they're expecting the um, working age population to shrink in the next couple of decades, who is this infrastructure for? Um, you know, they have to really think about generating a, a useful return on that investment, even if it is with a negative yielding interest rate. So any fiscal easing will not be enough to dig the European economy, let alone the world economy, out of a hole? No, I mean, we had the, the German GDP details uh, today, actually, uh, for the second quarter. And yes, it's still contracted. But the domestic demand story still looked very good. Um, so the question you have to answer is, would boosting domestic demand even further uh, realistically offset the weakness in exports? And the answer is probably no. Um, Germany, with its use of fiscal policy, can't devalue the euro. Um, it can't really do much more to improve the prospects for German uh, industrial companies or exporters. All it can do is provide the framework for some of those companies and jobs to switch their attention to domestic demand, which is growing very healthily. Um, I, I, I really don't think that uh, uh, fiscal policy can can do a great deal to get German GDP growth back up to, say, 3-4%. And finally, turning to the UK, uh, sterling has recovered very slightly in the last week on the basis of friendly conversations, at least, between Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel and President Macron. Uh, any change to the probabilities of a no-deal Brexit on October the 31st? Well, this is interesting. We track uh, the Betfair exchange to, to try to glean what, what's implied in terms of probabilities uh, along there. Uh, and what we found is the odds of a no-deal Brexit over the last month or so has risen from 33% up to 41%. So that's the highest it's been in, in quite 
uh, well, actually ever, uh, as far as I can uh, tell. Um, the odds of leaving on or before the 31st of October has gone from 40% up to 53%. And um, and the odds of an election before Brexit has come down from 58 to 48%. So the way I read this is that um, the, the betting community uh, is becoming more concerned about Brexit and a no-deal Brexit uh, for that matter. Um, those odds are now slowly getting to the point where it's becoming the central view of of um, these probabilities. Um, no deal on the 31st of October. Mm. And if you listen to the rhetoric um, from Boris Johnson and everybody, yes, there has been you know, positive communication and so on. Um, but at the end of the day, they haven't really made any progress with with Brussels on, on uh, the negotiations. And the UK is uh, full steam ahead preparing for a no-deal exit. Well, no doubt we will talk more about this subject over the next two months and beyond. But just to summarise what As has been saying today, um, we've reduced our growth forecast slightly on the basis that the trade dispute remains with us for some time. There's no prospect now of a resolution before the end of 2019. Within that global context, uh, the US remains more resilient, Europe and Japan uh, less resilient because of their exposure to world trade. Um, and, and China likewise remains slightly more resilient than some of the other Asian economies. So, Azad, thank you very much again for participating today and thank you all very much for listening.